0: Hi, I'm Dr. Eric Klavier, and thank you for joining us for this segment of the Klavier Report, Law, Policy, and Politics. In this episode, we're gonna be discussing protests versus lobbying, the pros and the cons. We've seen in 2020, and what COVID-19 and the pandemic has done is given rise to many protests in, in around the world, whether it's in your local community, your commonwealth, your state, or in your country, you've seen individuals take to the streets, social media, traditional media, and really voice their concern about issues that's been affecting them for years. Now we know that protest has been around for centuries, if not longer. We find where protest gives voice to those individuals that we call the people that don't have the resources or mechanisms To push forward to make the necessary change in their society or in their government. So protest is a useful, useful form to get your voice heard. But is it effective? Let's take a look at this video from Global News for Protest video, which will give us an idea of what gives rise to protests and is it effective. Let's take a
1: look. It seems like everywhere you look, there are protests. There has been a rise in protests around the world. While all protests may not be shown on the news or on social media, more footprints are being left behind by people marching the streets for change. But why the sudden surge? And do these protests have something in common? A common theme in each frustration with economic inequality, government corruption, and inaction. I think neoliberalism and austerity is really the core of this, but connected to that um, are issues of government corruption and inaction on the problems that have been caused um, by neoliberalism and austerity. So I think all of those are connected together and are all grounded in this uh, real problem that we're seeing emerge from a capitalist moment that's really created a global inequality and also an inequality within nations and within communities. Some demonstrations have lasted months despite police crackdowns like in Hong Kong, while others died down more quickly because of harsh responses from the states. This includes widespread arrests and security pushback, leading to injuries and even death in Iraq. Protesters target crowded locations like highways, public transit, and even international airports. The purpose of these, these events is to try and disrupt and to try and really push people and challenge them to think differently and to act differently. If we didn't want any disruption, we wouldn't have any sort of social change um, or activism at all. It needs to be disruptive to, to be effective. But have these protests made a difference or brought any kind of change?
2: The positive effect is that governments feel pressured by the demands of protesters, and they are they feel the need to respond to the issues that protesters are raising.
1: Chile's President Piñera fired his ministers and reshuffled his entire cabinet in an attempt to settle mass protests that began over a hike in subway fares. Hong Kong leader Carrie Lam scrapped a controversial extradition bill that sparked large protests for democratic freedom and plunging the city into recession. Ecuador leader declared a state of emergency after the streets of Quito were taken over by indigenous groups protesting the government's decision to end fuel subsidies. Lebanon's prime minister resigned after thousands of people blocked the streets of Beirut for weeks in one of the biggest demonstrations held against the government.
2: But there's also a negative effect, which is that as protests become more common, As the government and the media and other people become um, more familiar with protests and more accustomed to seeing them, they feel less threatened by the protests. And when they feel less threatened, they're less likely to take action.
1: Take the global climate strikes. While they're raising awareness of the dangers of environmental change, there are still political leaders around the world who say things like this. Those
0: heaving hemp-smelling bivouacs, climate change protesters.
1: It's not just a fact that protests are increasing. There's also an increase in coverage.
2: There has been a substantial increase in protest in the last 20 years. And this has had a lot to do with the rise of the internet, which has made it easier for people who organize protests to coordinate with their supporters and to coordinate with other organizations who might be interested in the the protest.
1: So while each protest grows out of unique circumstances, it's clear in each case that people are demanding more from their governments and will continue to let the world know.
0: So as you can see from the protests that were shown from the Global News uh, for protest video, they highlighted protests all over the world. Uh, more specifically in Europe, also the Middle East. And of course, we know protests that have happened in South America, right here in, in the Americas. Are protests effective? Now, let's take a look at what protests can do. First, protests can galvanize a group of people, a large group of individuals around one issue or various issues, but Surrounded around primarily the same problem or subject matter. Case in point, if there is a corrupt uh, government and that leader has to be removed, then there are many issues surrounding that cor- the corruption. It could be issues with bribes, issues with lack of social services, issues with failing structural systems and the like. When you have these issues, then persons get become disgruntled. Citizens believe that they have the right to push the government out and ask for a replacement, being ruled by the people. Now, of course, we know that this primarily does not happen in um, governments that are run by, that are not democratic or a hybrid or run by a parliamentary type of government. But we find that they are effective, whether it's a kingship, a monarchy, dictatorship, You have revolutions, you have coup d'etats, you have basically movements where people become empowered, emboldened to push their leaders for change. So that's one advantage of protests. Again, galvanizing a large group of individuals, citizens, around one issue or a problem, or the same subject matter, in order to ask for change. A second pro, uh, advantage of protests that I see is that protests give rise and notice to issues around the world in different spaces or different corners of the world to the rest of the world. Who would have known, unless you're paying attention to international, international affairs or it's covered on your local news or the national news, that there was an issue in Chile that he actually shuffled his uh, entire cabinet, that there was an issue in Indonesia where the people pushed for change, or in Beirut, where they stood in the middle of the street and blocking it until the leader actually resigned. Who would have known? But what it does, it gives rise to those issues, putting them on a larger platform and giving, giving the world notice. It also gives notice to leaders that are in their country and those who want to have power. Thirdly, I believe that one of the advantages, and there are many advantages to protests, but one of the other advantages of protest is that it provides a useful mechanism of citizens to participate in their government. Many times we see our capital structures, we see these massive buildings made of stone, marble, precious metals, adorning them. We see our elected officials, our selected officials, our kings, our queens, and we see them as untouchable. We see them as individuals who are there that are earned the right or have the privilege of being selected or born into the right family to create law, policy, to rule over and for a person who is not in that position, that can be a very humbling, a very um, scary moment for you to say, hey, how can I change this? Sometimes you'll be lost for words or just lost, period. What protest does, it gives you the opportunity, not just as a group, but as an individual to say, I want change. That's powerful. It is absolutely powerful. And that power, if used in the right manner, can truly create the change that you want to see. But does it? So let's look at three negatives of protests. One is that protests are for a moment. They may last for a day. They may last for a week, a month, a summer, even a year. But sooner or later, those protests have to end, and they do. Every single protest that has ever been started ends. When it ends, the fanfare ends. When it ends, it becomes lost in translation as to the reason why it started in the first place. Especially if something starts and it galvanizes a large group of individuals, citizens around an issue, other issues rise up. It takes its place. Basically, who has the biggest issue, the biggest pulpit, bully pulpit at the time? That's who wins. So it ends, and then what? Secondly, one of the negatives of of protest that I believe is that it also provides individual governments and the power structure to see the tactics of the people. And to also react to it in a way that it doesn't harm their power. What do I mean by that? If you protest enough and over and over and over again, the power wanes. And when the power wanes, that means that those that are in a power structure, those that are in government, those who have the authority to move resources, learn very quickly and skillfully how to navigate that that is a major blow to the power of a people being able to protest. But not just being able, but the effectiveness of their protest. Are they able to get their issues heard? And not just heard, we get them through the process to actually see the change. And one of the final negatives of protest that I believe. And there again, there are, there are many pros and cons to every issue. I'm just pointing out the three that I believe that are most pertinent and salient to getting actual change to happen. Leaders, they'll see the protests and they'll react very quickly. And once they react very quickly and handle the issue or, quote unquote, resolve or address the issue on the surface, it leaves the underlining issue, which may give rise to that same problem again. That is the problem with deregulation. When there is a provision in our policy on an agency level that cripples the ability of citizens to live in harmony, clean air, affordable energy, or affordable housing. When the regulation helps to create that level playing field, deregulation is right around the corner. And what happens is that when a new administration comes in or a new lobbying firm comes in and and they're able to push enough of the issues behind the scenes in policy, that area that was once resolved through a Regulation, I call it protections. Protections, not regulations, but protections. To protect the citizens, to protect the public, to protect your health, to protect your community, to protect our our soil, our water. When that regulation is removed, deregulation is always right around the corner. Protests created a mechanism to give rise and attention to the problem. The problem was noticed. The problem is addressed in some instances on the surface, but it leaves an underlying issue after the protest is done. So where do we go from here? Do we stop protesting? No. Do we stop giving voice to the voiceless and the people? No. Do we stop demanding change? No. We continue all of that, but it has to be coupled in the long term with something we call lobbying. Now, lobbying itself is basically the process of an individual or organization or entity. We call it special interests to navigate the governmental process and the public policy process through politics in order to get their special interests passed. It could be in an ordinance. It could be a regulation or deregulation. It could be in a statute. Or it could just be a signature, which provides an advantage or at least an agreement for X amount of time. We've seen leases on land for uh, X amount of years. In the Commonwealth of Virginia, we saw where a road being maintained for tolls was by the stroke of a pen, which was legal. The chief executive officer gave one company a 59-year lease to charge tolls on a road for people that can barely afford to drive. That's the power of lobbying. But I want us to understand the history of lobbying, the mechanisms of lobbying, and how lobbying can be used for good, and unfortunately, how it's used for bad in our democracy and in our world. Let's take a look at this video from the London School of Economics and Political Science for lobbying and see why. Let's take a look.
3: The the name lobbying comes from the fact that these individuals, corporations, representatives were waiting in the lobby of the parliament, uh, of the House of Representatives, in order to wait for the legislators as they were coming in and try to present their demands uh, to them. So lobbying is a process by which uh, professionals try to influence the decisions taken by elected representatives on behalf of their paying clients. Typically it means this, it may also mean that these professionals get to learn about particular legislation or particular decisions before the general public does. And by doing that, they can alert their clients so their clients can prepare uh, in anticipation of these decisions. In addition to being protected by the US Constitution, it is not unequivocal that lobbying isn't necessarily a, a bad thing. There is definitely a role for, for a good uh, type of lobbying a type of lobbying that informs elected representatives about things that they may need to know in order to draft good legislation. The fact that we are much more aware about lobbying practices in the U.S. relative to other countries is, in part, a good feature of the American process. In 1995, the U.S. introduced what is one of the most advanced pieces of legislation in in the world. This piece of legislation enforced the registration of every individual doing lobbying activities on behalf of a private client. And in addition to this registration, the lobbyists had to disclose the semi-annual revenues that uh, he or she was charging to his client. So that creates an enormous amount of transparency that makes it very easy for academics such as myself, but also for public watchdogs, to track how much lobbying there is, who is doing the lobbying, who is receiving the lobbying on behalf of what corporations, on behalf of what interest groups, and so on and so forth. A large proportion of lobbyists have some type of background in the public sector. They used to be a congressman or senators or or perhaps they were staffers working in the personal offices of a a congressman or a senator. And, And the question is, well, why is that the case? There are two views about this, and these two views can also tell us something about what lobbying actually is. So the first view is that having government experience has allowed these individuals to accumulate out of expertise about particular issues that are important in legislation or the workings of the legislative process. This would be like the expertise view. The second view would be that it doesn't matter so much what you know but instead who you know. That is, personal connections are important and individuals that have background in the public sector have used that background to accumulate a set of connections that they are using now, such that whenever they pick up the phone, somebody working in government responds uh, to that call. So what we do is try to evaluate the relative importance of these two views. If you're a staffer, and what makes you valuable to your client is your knowledge, your experience, and so on and so forth, does not dramatically disappear, when the congressman that you used to work for leaves office. Because you knew lots of things, you still know lots of things. Right? However, if it is personal connections that matter, that very important personal connection for you has suddenly evaporated. Therefore, if the personal connections view is the correct one, ex staffers that are working in lobbying should suffer a big penalty in their loving revenues coinciding with the period in which their ex-bosses uh, leave office. So this is what we study and this is what we find. The importance of personal connections seems very large relative to the importance of government experience. There is a very large discontinuous drop in the loving revenue of these ex-staffers when their ex-bosses uh, leave office. The drop is around 50% in the first semester then it recovers a little bit, All right, but it's a large uh, impact, considering that a single person has left, albeit an important one. Th- there is a view in political science that says that lobbying is less prevalent than the fundamentals of the U.S. economy would lead us to expect. Lobbying revenues, registered lobbying revenues, are in the orders of the low billions, you know, on an annual level. This is a very small number okay? uh, in comparison to the size of the U.S. economy. So small effects on the decisions that legislators take have huge implications uh, for corporations or, or interest groups. And as, as a result of this, what is surprising is not how much lobbying there is, but how little at least registered lobby, there is. Lobbying revenues have been going down rather than up and they have been going down coinciding with the reforms in 2007 and 2009 that were introduced you know, to make lobbying relatively less attractive now this could be a coincidence nobody really knows but to the extent that this is a problem it is a problem that is becoming less severe rather than more severe at least according to what the data says
0: As you can see from the lobbying educational video from the London School of Economics and Political Science, lobbying itself is a very important mechanism of public policy. So in in other words, if you're going to create change, protest is good, but you have to have the lobbying part to it. Lobbying itself has been around since government. We can go back all the way back to, you know, the Julius Caesar, where there was a lobby, an effort of talking with stakeholders to determine whether this particular emperor should continue to rule. And there you have it, at two Brutus. And to the founding fathers of our country, every single provision of our constitution, individual special interests, Lobby to have it in there. When we talk about three fifths person as it relates to the designation of human beings that were at that time categorized as property, slaves, blacks uh, from Africa <clears throat> who now are African American, considered African Americans. When we see that, that particular provision was created because there was a lobbying effort by special interests in the South. To count at that time slaves as citizens, one particular slave as one for representation purpose. But the North knew that they would be outnumbered if they did. So, i.e., the three fifths compromise. Just so a compromise in counting don't count at all, count as a whole. No, we will count as three fifths. And even today, the lobbying effort for every provision, every uh, policy, every statute, every act, every ordinance, every agency policy, every committee hearing, the decisions that come out in those hearings, there is a special interest behind the scenes that's lobbying the governmental agencies, the governmental actors, the heads of those governmental agencies and offices to include their provision. So why is this important? It's important because this is the way policy is created, period. This is important because this is the way that we actually move the needle to create laws, statutes, and policy, which change our lives, dictates our lives, orders our lives, orders resources, and eventually orders the behavior of society. One of the major hurdles or cons or negatives of lobbying is that lobbying itself is a big moneymaker. That we saw that the Lobbying Disclosure Act, after uh, former lobbyists, which we now call the profession Government Relations Consultants, as opposed to lobbyists, because of a former lobbyist named Abramoff, who actually abused his position in working with the Native American, more specifically the Native American um, population at as it relates to casinos and the like, and really abusing his power and charging them outrageous amounts of money and not delivering. This Lobbying Disclosure Act actually basically shows and mandates that groups have to disclose how much money they make. Also, we can track which individuals leave out of government as elected officials, as working in offices, and then go into lobby officially. Yes. These are the things that we have to understand is a part of the process. It's a good part. It can also be a bad part but it is a part of the process. Can laws be created without lobbying? Yes and no. What do you mean? Everyone has a good idea, but can that good idea become policy? Can it actually become written word that elected officials vote on, agree on, and then it becomes, it becomes public law, then codified? Can it? Not without lobbying. Now, without pressure, keep in mind, there are three rules, and these are the three things that I would give my clients when I'm consulting on their campaigns. The first rule is get elected. The second rule is to stay elected. And the third rule is to get reelected. If you can achieve those three rules, then you can operate as an elected official. The moment that you don't achieve one of those three rules, it doesn't matter. Because now you become a former elected official. And that has some influence, but has zero power. And of course, that depends on your community. But to make protests effective, to make society, to empower them, and to make the ruling faction of governments, of countries, commonwealths, Communities understand the power of the people. There has to be a lobbying effort attached to it behind the scenes and really starting before the protests and then ending, continuing after the protest ends. But I believe that protests can be a part of that lobbying process. Protests can be a part of that process in which we see true change created. So as you can see, protest versus lobbying, they both have their ups, they have the downs, they have their pros, they have the cons. But in order to be effective, protesters must have a lobbying component. But lobbyists don't need protesters, but they need to be aware. Be aware and beware of protesters after their policies, if policies they're creating are dangerous for their constituency or the citizenry of that particular country and the peoples of that community, because protests within give rise to that issue, it will give a voice to the voiceless, and the lobbying effort may be neutralized because of it. So we'll see where it goes from here. Thank you again for joining us for this segment of the career report, Law, Policy, and Politics. As we discuss and break down the pros and the cons of lobbying and protests, and how those two very important parts of our democratic process and the governmental relations process and the lawmaking process can be combined to offer true change to the people and the constituents that use protests to make an indelible difference in their community. I'd like to thank our producer, Ben Bailey, and also like to thank you, the listeners. Until next time, be well.